Today we're going to continue our series in the book of Romans. And uh, Last week, we looked at how Paul answered another objection that he knew would come from the teaching that he had been doing. And, and the objection was, is the law sin? And it is as though someone would have said, but, but Paul, you say the law can't justify anyone. You say the law can't sanctify anyone. That, that all under the law are guilty before God. Paul, it, it seems as though you have made the law out to be nothing more than wrath, death, and sin. So Romans 7, 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? And then Paul makes that emphatic statement, certainly not. No, no, certainly not. Go ahead and put up verse 12 right now for just a moment because Paul states it even more powerfully in a more positive way in verse 12 that, that the law uh, is not sin. Therefore, the law is holy and, and the commandment holy and just and good. And we talked about uh, those degrees, that progression that, that Paul talked about, it is holy, morally pure and blameless. It is just that which is legal and right. It is good, meaning that is what is helpful and caring. So Paul is saying this. So now back to uh, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary... See, here Paul is saying, no, it's the opposite of sin. It's holy, it's just, it's good. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. So Paul is making a defense for the law and its purpose. And as we've talked about, and what is the purpose of the law? To reveal sin, to show our sin. If we'd look for just a moment at verse 13. As that what is good, and here Paul is referring to the law, because he had just said that it is holy, it is just, it is good, has, has then what is good become death to me. And then Paul answers th th that again, certainly not, but sin. See, it's not the law that kills, it's sin. Certainly not, but sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good. Because the law was revealing sin. Do, do we understand what Paul is saying here? He was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment, through the law, might become exceedingly sinful. So the purpose of the law is to reveal sin, to make it revealed to us. Sin's deadly character is revealed under the pure light of God's law. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. Because the law reveals sin. God has given us His holy, righteous, and good law in order that through the commandment, sin might become exceedingly sinful. Now let's read uh, again. We read this last Sunday in Galatians 3, verses 21 and 22. Is the law then against the promises of God? 
And then Paul makes the emphatic statement again here in Galatians, certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin. See, the, sin, the, the, the law reveals sin. It makes all guilty before God. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. All confined under sin, none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. The rescue for sinners is Jesus Christ and Him alone. So the law's purpose is to make sin become exceedingly sinful, to make our sins evident and known to us, to know that we are a sinner and that by faith, then we might come to Christ, believing the gospel, repenting of our sins, receiving Christ as Lord and Savior. So the law has purpose. It reveals sin. In Romans 10, verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So do we understand? The law reveals our sin. And as we come to Christ, receiving Christ, believing the gospel of Christ, then we receive the imputed righteousness of Christ that we've talked about so often. So Paul has defended the law. He has spoken of the true purpose to reveal our sin, to expose sin. And so that brings us now to today's reading. Let's begin now in Romans 7, verse 14. We want to read through the entire rest of the chapter through verse 25. I'm not sure... How much we're going to talk about today, we may spend some time here just be praying that, that the Holy Spirit will lead and direct our thoughts and mind, will give us understanding of His Word today. Uh, what, what did Peter say uh, in your reading of, of Paul? Some things that are hard to understand. Uh, perhaps this is one of those passages, at least some people have made it out to be so. But let us read, beginning in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, 
who will deliver me from this body of death. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Let's pray once again. Heavenly Father, we we just come before you in your word and, and just say, Father, just pour out your spirit upon us. Lord, let your word speak. Give us understanding, Father, that, that we might understand these words that you have given to the Apostle Paul. Lord, help us. We need you. Protect us from error. Protect us from going out on a soapbox somewhere, Lord. Help us, Lord, to just look to you and let your word speak. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, here's how I'm going to start. Here's what we know. We have an account here of a person's inner conflict. One part of him is pulling him in one direction, and another part is pulling him in the opposite direction. Can we all agree? Here we have someone... There is a conflict, and the conflict is real. Is real. What I will to do, those things I want to do, I don't do. And what I hate that I know I shouldn't do, that's what I do. Inner conflict. And we talked about this a little bit last Sunday in, in knowing that, that <laughs> talking about obedience, hey, don't go into that closet. Oh, now the kids, that's all they want to do is go in that closet. Or somebody tells you, don't do something now, you want to do that. And, and so there's conflict there. And, and so here in this particular portion of Scripture, the great debate is over who is this person in Romans 14 through 25. Who is this conflicted man? Is is the is this Paul speaking of his present condition in his Christian experience and in, in turn would be our experience as believers? Is, is that what this is? Is this Paul here talking about an unbeliever, using literary license to talk about an unbeliever? Is, is this a true believer, but one who is carnal, legalistic, and frustrated with their attempt to please God by their own power and fail? Is that what this is? Or is this a person that's coming to faith? Perhaps someone in Paul's day that was under the law, and now they've heard the gospel, and they're in that midst of coming to faith, and but still trying to hang on and do things of their own, is, is that this person? And they find themselves failing. So where are we going to go? First, let me get, begin with this. An unbeliever cannot say, I know that the law is spiritual. An unbeliever cannot say, I agree with the law that it is good. An unbeliever cannot say, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. And when you hear that phrase, inward man, where does that take you? To many of the other writings of Paul talking about the inner man, and when he does that, he's talking about the spiritual man within. 
Can an unbeliever say these things? No. We have to agree, no, they can't. No, they can't. From Romans chapter 1 until now, Paul has said the said of the unrighteous, the ungodly, they have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They've exchanged the truth of God for the lie. They are deceived. They're futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts are darkened. They practice unrighteousness and are deserving of death. These people cannot say these things. That I delight in the law of God. Because that's the farthest thing from their mind. They're they're after themselves and all that the world and the lust and the things of the world can give. So can a person who is dead in their trespasses and sins delight in the law of God? No. No. And I believe we have to agree there because of what God's Word says. Can they say that the law is spiritual and good? No, they can't. And you may say, well, preacher, why not? Well, let's let Paul give the answer. It's in chapter 8, verse 7. Because the carnal mind, that's the ungenerate mind, the unbelieving mind, those who are still lost in their sins, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. What's he saying? That the unregenerate mind is hostile toward God. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not spirit, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor can it be. Talking of the ungenerate. So can an ungenerate, unbelieving, unsaved person say the law is good? No. So let, let, let's begin there. That the law is that the law they can't say that. So evidence points to this conflicted person in Romans 7 as being a believer. And I know this, the opposition to me saying that will say, now wait a minute. Now wait a minute. I must agree that an unbeliever cannot say those things that you just mentioned. They can't say the delight in the law of God. But, now listen, but can a believer say that they are a wretched man sold under sin and that nothing good dwells in him? Can a believer say that? Good question. Would Paul really say of a Christian, I am sold under sin? Uh, Romans 7 verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. And so the imagery here is is of being sold as into slavery. And we know that in Romans 6, you know, people will say, wait a minute, Paul has just talked about slavery and being set free from the the sin, the, the slave master of sin in Romans 6, 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Then 17 and 18. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So can a believer say, I am sold under sin? Here's what I want to do. I want to first look at at, at when Paul says there's nothing good that dwells in me because Paul put a qualifier on that statement in verse 18 and that qualifier is very, very important. In a sermon a few weeks ago, I talked about if we take the word flesh and we take carnal and we take all that and, 
And if we apply that to the wrong thing, we're going to be really messed up as we get further into Romans. Here Paul qualifies in verse 18. For I know that in me, that is what? In my flesh, nothing good dwells. In my flesh, in my humanness, in my unredeemed mortal body that is still susceptible to temptations of the flesh. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Now, let, let's go down to Romans seven twenty-two and 23. For I delight in the law according to the inward man. Now again, inward man. Uh, Paul's talks of, of being strengthened in the inner man. It, let's look at Ephesians 3, verse 16. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Talking about those who are born again, the inner man, the spiritual man that is within. Uh, so now let's go back uh, to verses 22 and 23 in Romans 7. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members. Let me pause there. When it says in my members, what's that talking about? Talking about hands, feet. It's talking about this mortal body. And I'll say it again. I know through the years I've talked about this, this unredeemed flesh. This body is going to go back to the dust of the earth from which it came. And we will one day, those who are in Christ, receive a new resurrection body that is pure and redeemed. But now, as we're walking on this earth, on planet earth, we are a new spiritual redeemed being in the inside, the inner man, living and housed in an unredeemed mortal body. And so what does that cause? What, does, what happens? But I see another law in my members, and so what happens? It is warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Do we see what's going on? There's a new spiritual man inside, unredeemed mortal body that we're housed in, this body itself has desires, and we talked about this in a sermon weeks ago, that whether it be desires for food or desire for drink or desire for, for uh, uh, sex within marriage, wh whatever it may be, it, there's desires that are created and caused by this body that we're living in. That's how God made it. But it is mortal. It is unredeemed. And so there's this conflict, a tension between the yet unredeemed mortal body of flesh and the spiritual inward man that by grace through faith now resides in it. And so let's, Paul makes this clear in Galatians 5 verse 17. For the flesh lusts after the spirit, against the spirit, sorry, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things you wish. It's talking about an inward battle. Does that sound like Romans 7, wretched man? Now, depending on who you have read, 
some will say, but wait a minute, preacher. In Galatians 5, Paul is talking about the Spirit and the flesh. In Romans 7, there's no mention of the Spirit. So you can't, these aren't the same. To which I will say, can you tell I've been reading a lot, and I know the objections that are coming. I believe Paul infers the Spirit in Romans 7 when he talks of the inward man. See, if this inward man is delighting in the law of God, this must be a man born of the Spirit. Amen? If they're delighting in the law of God, that infers that they must be born again, born of the Spirit. So I say the Spirit is implied in Romans 7, that this is an inward spiritual man if they're delighting in the law of God. And just let me pause here and say, do I have this all figured out? No. No. How arrogant would that be of me to even say such a thing? Do you have it figured out? I'm going to answer for you. No, you don't. I'll tell you when we'll have it all figured out is someday in glory. We can go up to the Apostle Paul and say, Paul, would you, would you interpret what you said so that I can know for sure what you were talking about, about the wretched man in Romans 7? Because I know this. That there are men of God that I listen to, that I read, that are on opposite sides of this. As for me, it just so happens that I believe the teaching that John Piper did on this, John MacArthur aligns with that. So, and then I know people say, well, you're just a, You're just a follower of those guys. I want to follow what the Word of God says. And I I want to be where the Word of God teaches. And for me, I believe these two men are, are teaching, at least to me, where I am today, is teaching right about the Roman 7 man. I want to read a quote from John Piper regarding Romans 4 or Romans 7:14 and of being sold under sin. So listen to John. Would Paul really say of a Christian, I am sold under sin? The imagery of being sold is the imagery of slavery. A slave master seems to have bought him and he is sold. The slave master is sin. Can a Christian ever say, I am sold under the slave master of sin? Now listen. It is not impossible, it is not impossible that Paul could speak of a Christian as temporarily sold under sin. And right there, some people's going to say, all right, now you're, you're twisting things around when you start saying things like that. But listen. It is not impossible that Paul could speak of a Christian as temporarily sold under sin. Paul doesn't have to be saying that the person who sins moves from being a Christian to being a non-Christian. This is me now. Do we still sin as Christians? Yes. And we're going to be talking about that in a minute. So what Paul is saying or what Piper is saying, Paul doesn't have to be saying just because you sin and just because you're saying, wretched man, I, I've, 
I've temporarily fallen into sin. How could I do such a thing? doesn't mean they've lost their salvation. Because those who are truly saved are, are saved to the uttermost. Saved forevermore. Back to Piper. It is not impossible that Paul could speak of a Christian as temporarily sold under sin. Paul doesn't have to be saying that a, Christ, that a person who sins moves from being a Christian to being a non-Christian. He may only be saying that in the moment of failure, sin got the upper hand. Like a slave master temporarily getting control of a person who is not really his. Isn't this exactly what Paul warns against in Romans 6, 12? Let's put that up. He says to Christians, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey it in its lusts. In other words, since you are not really slaves of sin, and sin will not have dominion over you, therefore, act like it. Stay free. Don't give sin any victories as an alien slave master. Don't sell yourself to sin. But the assumption seems to be, we might for a season let sin reign, that is give in to the old slave master. In Galatians 5, 1, Paul seems to make an even striking and helpful uh, statement in regard to this, suggesting that Christians do need to watch out for slavery. He says in Romans, Galatians 5, 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. A yoke of slavery. Now I'm going to pause in Piper's quote because I've talked about these very things to, to don't go back and live like the old man. Live like the new man that you are. Don't go back and put yourself under the yoke of bondage, under the yoke of slavery. Don't do that. And by him saying don't do it, it means it's possible. When... When, when Paul said in, in Romans 6, don't let sin reign, he said that because it's possible for us as a born-again child of God to let it reign temporarily. Piper, don't give in to the old ways. Why? That would be like going back to slavery. Paul uses the very language of slavery to describe what might happen to the Christian temporarily if he is not vigilant. We might for a time let sin reign or submit to a yoke of slavery. This is what I think Paul is describing in Romans seven fourteen when he says, I am carnal sold under sin. When he gives in to the temptation and does what he does not want to do, he knows that he has temporarily been mastered by sin and he is like a sold slave, end quote. And again, we, we talked about a lot of this several weeks ago now. And I read this quote from John MacArthur back then. And it says, Because a believer is a new, cre new creature in Christ, his immortal soul is forever beyond sin's reach. Okay, now do we believe that statement? If we're in Christ, our immortal soul is forever beyond sin's reach. We're saved to the othermost. One day we will stand before God the Father holy, blameless, and above reproach because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. And now back to MacArthur's quote, the only remaining beachhead where sin can attack a Christian is in his mortal body. 
one day that body will be glorified and forever be out of sin's reach. But in the meanwhile, it is still mortal. That is subject to corruption and death. It still has sinful lust because the brain and the thinking processes are part of the mortal body. And Satan uses those lusts to lure God's people back into sin in whatever ways he can. End quote. Do we believe that? Is that Christian experience for you? To temporarily have sin get the upper hand. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. You see, this we know. Sin has no power to control a believer unless the believer chooses to allow it. Is that a true statement? Sin has no power to control a believer unless the believer chooses to allow it, to obey its lusts. Lust and sinful desire stemming from this mortal body, our minds, our imaginations. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 9. And again, this has not been too many weeks ago. I think I talked about this. In 1 Corinthians 9, 21, or 24, I'm sorry, 24 through 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. The ESV says every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. But we, children of God, we, we do it for an imperishable crown. Then Paul says, therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. And then the ESV says, I run not aimlessly. And then we remember what Paul said in Philippians 3, I I, I press on toward the mark. I press toward the goal of of the, the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. See, taking, talking of his physical body, this mortal body, bringing it, into subjection, under control, exhibiting self-control of, of the, the fruit of the Spirit. And, and I know I talked about this. That Greek word for subjection is doulagagio, from the root word doulos, which means slave. So Paul is saying, I make my body my slave to serve me and my mission to God rather than me allowing my body to make me, the spiritual man, its slave. And again, a MacArthur quote along those lines. Most people, including many Christians, are instead slaves to their bodies. Their bodies tells their mind what to do. Their bodies decide when to eat, what to eat, how much to eat, when to sleep and get up and so on. An athlete cannot allow that. And he's talking about that First Corinthians 9. He follows the training rules, not his body's desires. He runs when he would rather be resting. He eats a balanced meal when he would rather have a chocolate sundae. He goes to bed when he would rather stay up. And he gets up early to train when he would rather stay in bed. An athlete leads his body. He does not follow it. It is his slave, not the other way around. 
And I believe that's how we as Christians should view this, our mortal body. Discipline our body. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others I find myself, I myself should become disqualified. How about Romans 12, verses 1 and 2? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your what? Bodies. A living sacrifice. Holy. Acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may be, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So present your bodies. Don't let these mortal bodies dictate our spiritual walk. Romans 6, 13. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God. And again, he's saying that because that's a possibility for the child of God. That we would temporarily stumble and fall into sin. And in that, we would be presenting our members, our hands, our feet, whatever part of our body it may be, to be used as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Paul is saying, don't allow that. Don't let them be used and available to sin. And what is the key to this battle with the flesh? Well, he said it there. It's right there. Uh, But present yourselves to God. Romans 6, yeah. But present yourselves to God. And keep presenting yourselves to God. That's in that, that tense of keep, keep on presenting yourselves to God. And that comes by humbling ourselves before Him. That comes by coming to God and, and saying, Lord, fill me with Your Spirit. Lord, give me wisdom and discernment from Your Word. Lord, help me. To make my members of my body instruments of righteousness for you. Every day that we would pray, Lord, equip me this day. That every day we would put on the whole armor of God that we'd we'd be able to withstand when temptations come. And to know that we stand not in our own power and strength, but in His power and His might. So child of God, don't be deceived. What we read and talked about last week, that I was deceived and sin killed me. Child of God, don't be deceived. We are in a daily battle with sin, with the lust of the flesh, this mortal body. And may we stay on the alert and be vigilant. I'm going to read from Romans one more time in Romans 13, verses 11 through 14. And do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to wake out of sleep. For your salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and junkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. That's a call to action. Child of God. 
Let's go to what Paul said to Timothy. And again, we read this a few weeks ago, but let's put it back together one more time because it fits with what we're talking about today. 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. Remember us talking about this. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Another call to action, a call to obedience to the word of God and the will of God. Exercise yourself toward godliness. Now, let me ask the born-again Christians that are here today, and perhaps some that may listen to the sermon at a later time, have you ever in your Christian life, your Christian walk and experience, lost a battle with sin? For that moment, you succumbed to the temptation of sin and willingly placed yourself only temporarily, under a yoke of bondage, under the old slave master, sin. Have you ever done that? And everyone in here would have to say, if you're born again, yes, I have. Wait a minute, preacher, not me. There are those who say they don't sin and they can't sin after becoming a child of God. And to those, I would say, what was written in 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. See, you're being deceived if you don't think you sin and that you're perfect. How arrogant. How arrogant is that? To think you can live a perfect life while walking around in this mortal body. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. And I'll ask this as well to the born-again children of God. When we sin, what would be the resulting thoughts of when we sin? Will we feel conviction? Let me ask this, would our response be similar to the man in Romans 7 and say, wretched man, oh wretched person that I am, how could I have done such a thing? How could I have said such a thing? I'm a Christian, I'm a child of God. Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, forgive me. Lord, help me. And He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you been there? I have. And again, to me, it seems like as we grow and grow and grow more in our Christian walk and in our faith, it bothers me more now than it did when I first began. Because I would think, after being born again for 50-some-odd years, I'd have this down a little bit better. 
But I still mess up. And I cry out when it does, when I'm convicted of what I've done, Lord. And so I can see that wretched man in Romans 7, and I can identify with that wretched man. Because for that moment, I succumb to sin. And it seems to me that recognizing one's wretchedness and their sin is, is, is the first step in coming to faith. Recognizing our sin. Perhaps the, the writer of the old hymn had that in mind, that first verse of Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You see, are you a wretch that has been saved by grace through faith? Have you believed the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you confessed your sins before Him and received Jesus Christ as Lord? I want to end today like I do quite often, just reading some verses that talks about those very things. In John 3, verses 14 through 18. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why? Why must Jesus Christ be lifted up upon a cross? That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So Jesus Christ came to this earth to be the perfect sacrificial lamb, to give his life a ransom for many, to pay in full the penalty of sin for all those who would believe. And so the gospel call would go out by faith, believe and receive Jesus Christ. Confess that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Repent of your sins and turn and follow Jesus. In John 5, verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in Him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. John 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son, in Jesus Christ, has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John six forty-seven, For surely I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. So by grace through faith, believe, 
receive Christ repenting of your sins. Romans 10, verses 9 through 13. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I pray that your Holy Spirit will minister to each one the particular word that you have for them in the midst of all that was said today. Let your word speak. Let mine diminish and speak as only you can to hearts and minds. Father, I pray that should there be someone lost within this hearing that that by a miracle of mercy, Lord, that you would shine upon them, that you would send your Holy Spirit to raise them from their spiritual death and give them life. And in, and in that very moment that their sin would be overwhelmingly revealed to them that they would know that they are a sinner that they would know that they are in the presence of most holy God and under your wrath and and father show them the rescue that's in Jesus Christ through the cross the shed blood of Jesus the sacrifice to pay the ransom for all who would believe so father grant them repentance as they would fall before you confessing their sins Lord, grant them faith that they might believe and turn from their sin and follow Christ the remainder of their days. And Father, for those of us who are born again, Lord, remind us, remind me, Lord, that that we must stay vigilant. We must stay alert. We must stay on guard, Lord, that, that we would be in your word, that we would be praying, and that you would help us to, to guard our hearts and minds. Lord, help me, help us, Lord, that we would not fall to the lusts and the temptations that come while still living in this mortal body. Lord, help us to to fight the good fight of faith. Help us to exercise ourselves toward godliness. Help us to shine as, as the light of Christ in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. Lord, we need you. Help us to know who we have in us, in the inward person that we who are born again have the Holy Spirit to help us, to strengthen us, and to guide us as we acknowledge you in all our ways. You will direct our path. So, Father, help us to continue to study, to learn more of you. And in learning more of you, we will understand more of who we are in Christ. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.